from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. This year, we mark Martin Luther King Jr. Day at a momentous time in our nation's history. I'm Tanzina Vega. Join me, Brian Lair, and Jamie Floyd for WNYC's annual MLK Day special with the Apollo Theater. Our esteemed guests include Congressman James Clyburn, Reverend Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and New York Attorney General Letitia James. Join us. There are two chances to hear it, 9 a.m. or 10 p.m. Monday. Martin Luther King Day, here on Radio Catskill. Good morning and welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and my guest today is Tracy Higgins, someone near and dear to my life here at WJFF. We were trained together and we cut our teeth on car talk, making announcements, doing the weather and the like. Needless to say, mistakes were made, but we were quite the team. Tracy's family has been coming up to the Catskills for generations, and she now owns a home in Shahola, Pennsylvania. Tracy is a retired Air Force officer and is a PhD in nursing from Columbia University Medical Center. While in the service, she lived for many years in Paris, serving there as a special investigations liaison and also served as a senior Defense Department representative in Burundi and other locales throughout the world, including Italy, Korea, Rwanda, Israel, India, and Egypt. Tracy has also worked as a certified neuroscience registered nurse and a child psychiatric nurse in Florida, where she did Jungian sand play. Most recently, she finished an assignment at a top New York City hospital working with a critical care team in their COVID unit. We have lots to talk about, so let's bounce over to my conversation with Tracy Higgins. Tracy, welcome back to WJFF. Hi, Donna. It's great to be here back with WJFF from afar. I'm so happy to have you here today. And I wanted to ask you, what do you remember, if anything, about our training and our work here at WJFF? Yeah, how I love that place and the folks we work with. What a brilliant radio station. I still listen to it uh, via internet from afar, so I think it's the best radio station out there. Your family has been coming up to the Catskills for generations. Do you know the names of any of the places where they stayed? Well, you know, my mother points out some of the old boarding houses where they stayed. I was just up there um, last week with my mother, and she was pointing out some of the places My mother and father actually got engaged at one of the boarding houses in Shahola, believe it or not. I was looking through old letters and pictures with my mother, and some of the letters, they're all uh, stamped from like Yulin, Eldred, Barryville, from like the early 1900s. And then they're talking about taking the train back and forth um, from Shahola to New York City, because my parents, my grandparents were all in Brooklyn and Queens. So they came up to the Catskills every summer. So it's really part of our family. It's in our family blood, I think, you know, and we just love it there. It's such a special place. It really is. But you weren't raised here. You were raised somewhere else primarily. No, I I wasn't really raised there except in the summertime. From the time I was a baby, I think I learned to walk up there in the mountains. 
um, because my my mother, when she was a school teacher, she actually bought her own little cabin when I was five. So then we had our own little place with a family of six in this tiny little cabin. Every summer we'd come up there um, when mom was off from teaching school. And um, so in a way, it is a childhood home because we spent our happiest times there up in the summertime. Um, but my family's from New York and uh, my father actually moved to outside of Philadelphia to get a job um, after I was born. Um, so uh, I actually grew up um, during the year outside of Philadelphia and then I moved to Chicago as a teenager um, to go to school. So, But yeah, so really the Catskills for me is... Um, where I feel like uh, it's my childhood home, really. Your family, I think, still has a horse farm in Georgia. Isn't that what where I'm speaking to you from? Yes, I'm. I'm actually. I don't know if you heard the horse whinny in the background during your. No. Interview, but, uh, but yeah, my sister, she's a real horsewoman and an ex-army helicopter pilot. So in her retirement, it was always a dream to have a horse farm. So I'm I'm with her right now at at the farm, and just came down yesterday, and I'll go back to the cat skills here soon, I think, but I go back and forth a lot. So it's hard to um, figure out where I'm going to be next, but that's where I'm talking to you from now, right, right now in Georgia. Well, you know, I had no idea that your sister was in the service too. How did these two girls, and for all I know, there could be another one. How did you both end up in the service? There must've been some kind of an influence there in your family. No, we weren't much of a military family. No, um, no. Um, but uh, it started out as a way to pay for college, I know, especially for me. Um, and that, so that's how it started. And I wanted to fly. So that's why I went into the Air Force and was in college. So my sister's just going right by now on a golf cart. <laughs> I just see <laughs> And uh, so that's how we got started was a way I to go to college. But then we became um, committed to the military life and the military mission. And we all ended up uh, spending our entire career, 20 years in the military. Wow. Well, uh, that did give you a lot of exposure to other countries. And I know when you served in the military, you lived in Paris for quite a while. What were the best parts of living in France for you? France was an incredible experience for me because uh, I had never lived in France before. I learned French just before going there, and I actually learned it pretty much living there. You know, you learn more about your own culture when you when you're immersed in another culture. I didn't go with a family or anything. I was on my own. So um, forcibly, I, all my friends and all my work uh, contacts were French. So I was, I was literally immersed in French culture and language. And I just I learned so much about a different way of seeing things, a better understanding of things that we normally take for granted, the way we live our lives, um, how we spend time with family, how we eat vacations, um, how we study, uh, all these things were kind of kind of new for me. And it made me sort of reexamine our own culture and the way we do things. And I have, I think, an even greater appreciation of our own culture as well as um, the French culture. So I learned a lot on both sides of the spectrum. Incredible experience. So did you incorporate any of the things that were more French than um, an American way of, say, eating or sleeping, anything that you incorporated into your own life? I think I have a much greater appreciation. Of course, it it almost seems uh, trite, but um, I do pay a lot more attention to where my food comes from and how I Mm. eat. You know, they're very strict in France on, on how food is grown and how it's prepared and 
and of course, I learned a lot about food when I was there, and um, and I've kept those habits that I gained in France now um, throughout the rest of my life because I was in my twenties the first time I lived in France, and in my thirties uh, when I lived there again. So I think the way I eat, but also I was I learned a lot about a lot more about literature and world affairs, the the importance of being well informed because I found that people who were in all aspects of life. I mean, they could be uh, somebody who, who came to repair my, my faucet as, a, as well as someone that I worked with. Um, I worked with a lot of police and intelligence agencies in France. They were just so knowledgeable about literature and language and, and, and world affairs that I found at a much higher level and, and much better educated and pushed their kids to be better educated. Their kids, you know, when they graduated from high school, which is really the Bach for them, it's really like the first couple of years of, of college for us. So mm. um, much harder working, much more time set aside for study and set aside for family time, set aside for a vacation with the family. Just a lot slower pace of life for a lot of things that are important. So I really, I think I benefited a lot from that and I've, I've sort of held on to that. And it does sound trite because since I've lived there, so many people have talked about this and and it sounds like I'm a broken record, but you know, I've lived there in the 90s and then in the early 2000s, and I, and I really did find that uh, as a young person. I found that to be really important. Yeah, and I, and I don't think it's tried. I think it's, I think it's something that um, a lot of people have tried to incorporate into their lives now, especially with the food aspect, you know, being more aware of where your food is coming from and um, being cognizant of big agriculture and its impact not only on our diets, but also on, on the very air we breathe. So I, I don't think it's tried. I think it's really important. And I think it affects the amount. You know, in France, a, a glass of wine is a tiny little glass of wine, but here it's like a goblet of wine. Right. <laughs> it's just all That's the small true. things. And then to make things worse, I did move to northern Italy for a couple of years. I was an oh, Italian oh specialist. So, of course, then I got the appreciation of Italian food, you know, and, and some of the things that now are common in the U.S., like prosecco and and uh, prosciutto San Daniele, you know, you find that everywhere now in the United States, whereas 20 yeah, years yeah. ago it was unheard of. What is really good and true eventually rises to the surface, right? So yes. glad to see that I can still get a lot of these things uh, in the United States now. Let's hope that's, that's true. true. <laughs> <laughs> so after you left the Air Force, what got you into nursing? Yeah, you know, I never would have guessed that I would have become a nurse because, um, you know, my career in the military, I mean, it was criminal investigations and, I mean, it's just so far away from healthcare. But as I got older uh, and I was getting ready for that retirement, which I had planned for since I was a teenager, part of my plan so going into the military was that I could retire young and do what I wanted. So when the time mm -hmm. came to do what I wanted, um, I realized that it'd be good to have a continuing source of additional income but also do something that I found to be really meaningful. So I was exposed when I was at Cornell to uh, the health sciences. So I went in that direction and I found that nursing would just offer just unlimited opportunities in different areas. Plus I'd be to be more of a challenge uh, to continue studying and how to help people. And it just seemed like the ideal thing for a retired person, you know, maybe you'd be a part-time nurse. So I headed in that direction and I went to nursing school Little did I realize that I would just continue right on all the way through the Ph.D. because of the opportunities that were there. And I was just so happy to go to uh, Columbia. Um, and, of course, back in New York for a few years, living back in New York, um, 
So it was nice sort of to go home after all that traveling in the military. So all just added up to in this direction of being a nurse and then being a PhD. And I just kept studying and, um, and I'm still in that, in that mode of, you know, what's the next thing. So I started out in, um, in med surge nursing, which is really the basic uh, nursing um, in a hospital in acute care. And then I specialized in neurosciences, which uh, patients with traumatic brain injuries or strokes, you know, neck, back surgeries, that sort of thing. And then I moved on into psychiatry, especially child psychiatry, because they had a large child psychiatry unit in the hospital that I was working. Yeah, so now- I was, I, excuse me for interrupting, but I was very interested in the Jungian sand play therapy. Could you give us a little brief on that? Yeah, so um, because of my experiences uh, working as a nurse in child psychiatry and my interest in psychology and Jungian psychology, I I stumbled across sand play therapy, which I think is is just a brilliant therapeutic modality. And there are two versions of there, sand tray and sand play, and sand play is the Jungian version. And I guess to put it in simple terms, I mean, it's just, it's like a tactile method because you actually have a box of sand, which is like, you know, one or two feet uh, in a a wooden box, um, which it's like a sort of, it's like a tactile method of like unconscious expression um, using images that arise sort of spontaneously. And you use these small figurines. Normally a sand play area would have you know, tens or hundreds, even thousands of figurines, depending on on the therapist that uh, a child or an adult uh, would choose from in order to create this sort of scene spontaneously. And the idea is to be working in a sort of protective space, a safe space with a witness who was the therapist or the nurse, whoever that may be, who was essentially silent, you know, just observing what's happening uh, or maybe just participating by acknowledging what is happening, you know, not interfering, not changing anything, but just acknowledging what is happening, the sort of recognition. And strangely enough, this therapeutic modality, it sort of releases a lot of emotion or like underlying confusion or even trauma, you know, can be mm-hmm. out in this space. So it's an amazing and fun and fascinating process. Eva Patasoja, who's a sand play therapist, she put it by saying like, through shaping a little world, the children become directly and instinctively into touch with unconscious energies within, and mm-hmm. they emerge strengthened from the process. If anybody out there interested, um, the son of uh, Yehudi Menuhin, the violinist, Joel Rice Menuhin, wrote a very good book on sand play therapy. So it's a very nice introductory book if anybody's interested. But it's one modality wow. that I thought, you know, that, you know, I could use as a nurse um, because play therapy with children is, is really important because I work in an acute care area of child psychiatry. So we see kids for usually three to five days who are brought in because of some really acute, you know, life-threatening sort of situation where they're hurting themselves or someone else. So we need to deal with this child who's been traumatized. Yeah. And, and it's the source of of problems that um, physical somatic diseases throughout the lifespan, right? So if yeah. we focus on these things early on and think of effective ways to deal with them, it's not just psychiatry in its own space. It also affects medicine, somatic medicine for the child and throughout their lifespan. Wow. Makes me want to go back to school. 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you got to keep going. You know, never stop. Yeah. I had to learn how to do this show from home, so I'm trying to keep the brain fibers agile. <laughs> and you're doing a great job with all the different shows. <laughs> Thanks. You know, Tracy, I think we'll take a quick break here and then come back and we'll speak some more, okay? Okay, great. This is Catskill Character, and I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. We're going to take a quick break and come back and speak some more with my guests, nurse and world traveler, Tracy Higgins. We'll be right back. During a busy day, it can be hard to make room for even one more thing. So it's a real plus that All Things Considered from NPR News is great for multitaskers. You can confidently add being well-informed to your to-do list and know that you will get it done. Whether you're cleaning out your junk drawer on a quick drive or something else, listen to All Things Considered every weekday afternoon. Starting at 4 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill, celebrating 30 years of public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen to us on your smartphone. Just download the WJFF app. If you've just joined us here on Catskill Character, I'm speaking today with Shahola resident Tracy Higgins. In the first half of the show, Tracy talked a bit about her roots in the Catskills, her military service, which took her all over the world, working with children, doing Jungian sand play therapy, and what moved her to become a nurse. In the second half of the show, Tracy will speak more about nursing and in particular, her experience working at a top New York City hospital, assisting the critical care team in their COVID ICU unit for three months during the height of the lockdown in New York City. Here's more of my conversation with Tracy Higgins. Tracy, I'm just going to step back a little bit here because you did say something about being a med surge nurse. Could you tell the audience what that means exactly? Yeah, med surge is like is like the basic level of nursing in an acute care facility. So in a in your in your average hospital um, on a medical unit, you would have what you call med surge nurses who can handle the broad spectrum of medical diseases and surgical preparation or post-operative care. I see. And how how is that different from a critical care nurse? Uh, a critical care nurse um, specializes in things that, you know, they, they leave med surge to go into an area that they need closer observation and more intense support. And uh, that's a very important uh, job. We don't have enough critical care nurses. It's, a, it's an amazing specialty, so much needed for, for COVID patients. Um, and of course, we when we had the COVID emergency in New York, there's never an, enough critical care nurses to handle that sort of a sudden onslaught. So I think that they were very smart in that um, in order to support the critical care nurses, in, in addition to bringing in as many other critical care nurses they could from other parts of the country, they also brought in med surge nurses who could essentially work for the critical care nurses and supporting them in care of the patient because they just had more of a much greater patient load than they would normally have. Normally, a critical care nurse would have two patients per. So rather than just leaving them with just critical care nurses, bring in med surge support who could help them. So when I started out, I was supervised by a critical care nurse so I could help them cover the, the number of patients that they had to care for. So what was the pathway 
as a med surgeon is going into New York and assisting on the COVID units with these critical care teams? How did it come about? Yeah, so I was in Florida, and then we were witnessing what was happening in New York. And I have a New York license in addition to a Florida license. I hadn't worked in New York, but, I, you know, we're, we're witnessing it via the television. We get a letter in the mail from Governor Cuomo. We get phone calls from um, Governor Cuomo's office. I thought it was very smart of them. And then we have recruiters calling us on the phone. So, I, you know, I realized that the problem is there. It exists. And I feel a, a sort of closeness to New York because my family's from New York. And knowing that I have a license and I can support the nursing staff there, I felt sort of an obligation to go. I don't know what's my military background, that, you know, you have the skill to help out. The call is there. Go. I did go in April. Um, I got there on uh, Easter Sunday. (laughs) And I was nervous about going because I, just like everyone else, didn't really understand what was happening with COVID and how this disease is passed on. I mean, it was just scary for everybody. Yeah. But, but I just went, and I'm certainly not any kind of hero by any stretch of the imagination. I just had some of the basic skills that I could sort of support the staff. And so I did go, and I was scared the first day walking in on active COVID patients on ventilators. But I eventually just got sort of less and less scared as, as time went on. And um, eventually I was farmed out to an, uh, a floor, another floor in the hospital where they had stepped down for COVID patients. So we still had COVID patients. I went to a med surge floor. Um, with COVID patients. And then eventually over the three months, the acuity levels fell. And so we had very few left. So it was great to see that transition. Everybody's in the, in, with acute care and then going to a med surge floor and then having very few COVID patients at all. And of course, I tested as early as I could for antibodies. I had antibodies, but I tried to tell myself not to allow that to affect how I approached my patients. I needed to be still super careful because we don't really know what that means to have the antibodies how well you're protected. So over the period of time, you can start to get a little bit careless. So I'd remind myself to stay, you know, still very, very careful in in treating patients. But the the level of nervousness, of course, goes down. I've met a lot of heroes that were working in the hospitals that were just amazing. I was so grateful to come in contact with them and, and support them. I was really impressed. So it was a good experience. So when you said you had the antibodies, does that mean that you at some point had COVID, but you were, you didn't have any symptoms? You were asymptomatic? Right. I may have, you know, I was in New York in February at a very large international conference. So I, I suspect that I may have been exposed then. I also went to the dentist for a couple of things. I mean, maybe I was exposed and I had no idea. Um, maybe I was exposed in the hospital, who knows, but no, I never had any symptoms that I was aware of of COVID, but I was probably exposed at some point. How many hours were you working? You know, we, they really needed folks. So we ended up working overtime. Um, so a, a normal is a three to 12 hour shift per week. So, uh, I did four 12s, four nights actually, uh, every week. So that was pretty tiring because you don't really get the kind of break you would normally get on a regular full-time schedule. So the overtime was really demanding, especially at the beginning. Um, That was really hard. But, you know, you just, you don't do anything else. You know, you just work and then you just rest (laughs) when you're not at work. But I was happy to be in New York. I love New York. Even when COVID was going on, I was happy to be in New York and happy to to help support uh, the effort. Um, So, yeah, I just... You know, even even when the streets were empty and I was very happy when I was I was so tired to have to go out and face another night. But I was so grateful because I'd go out. I might I'd have to be at work by like 
7.15, 7.30 in the evening. And when I'd go out, I'd have to leave my apartment at 7, which was just at the time when people would start coming to the windows and banging their pots and pans. Oh, and right. Yelling. And sometimes people would play music really loud out the window and people were just really supportive. So when you have to leave your house to go to work and people come out of their windows and start cheering, uh, was that really brings your level of, of energy up. And I was so grateful to them. And it, it made such a difference trying to head out for yet another 12, 13 hour shift with yeah. people supporting you that way. I was, that was just so great, especially April, May, people coming out there and, and, and cheering us on. And I really felt like we were one, like we were really connected because everyone was pretty much hiding in their apartments because the streets were empty, right? You had to mm-hmm. stay inside. But then at that one moment at seven o'clock, we were all one. We all came together, wow. supported one another at that moment in time. And it really felt great. Well, you know, if there's anybody out there listening right now and they were one of those people banging on pots on their balcony and they were wondering, why, you know, why am I doing this? Is this helping? Now, you know, it did help because Tracy Higgins was marching herself into that hospital. (laughs) She was dragging herself in and just having those people there uh, cheering her on made it easier for you. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing. Yeah. It's a I wish very, I, say, I wish I could say thank you. A lot of times, you know, we'd wave to each other or I'd yes. something, but I'd love to say thank you to all those people who were so supportive. Well, what are you going to do now? Now I am uh, probably, uh, I'm going to get back to the Catskills as soon as I can to enjoy the rest of what is a gorgeous summer. Um, and then probably head back to, uh, I'm actually going to go back into psychiatry, which is my field. And uh, I'm a traveler now, so I can um, go to different parts. of the country. I'm going to be actually in New York for a few months working in the area of psychiatry. So I'll mm-hmm. uh, be back in New York for a few months and then head back to Florida in uh, probably January <laughs> when it gets really cold. But um, yeah, so I, as a retired person, I'm back and forth. I'm in Georgia, I'm in Florida, I'm in New York, I'm up in the Catskills. Um, and as a nurse, I can do that, right? I can accept assignments wherever I'm needed, wherever it's a good fit, which I think is one of the reasons why I was ready to go back to New York in April. You know, it was, you know, having, being associated with a travel company, I can get there and I had all the support I needed to get there quickly and get started and get rolling right away. So, um, so now I'll stay in New York for, uh, for a while and then I'll see where I might be needed next, where I might be useful. That's fantastic, Tracy. I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you made it out healthy, and thank you for doing it. I'm so happy to see you again, and I hope at some point you'll come back to WJFF. That's the plan, Donna. Yeah, I will get back to JFF and and help do what you're doing in community radio. It's a wonderful thing. I really enjoyed the, the shows that I did back in 2016, the health shows that we did. And uh, you've got such a great staff and great volunteers. So uh, thank you for what you're doing. Okay, Tracy. Thank you so much. This has been Catskill Character with today's guest, Tracy Higgins. Catskill Character is on every Saturday morning at 1130, right after Rosie Starr's Farm and Country. Tune in then for more conversations with wonderful characters of the Catskills on Catskill Character on WJFF. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater.
an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Barb Demarest with the WJFF Community Calendar. Sullivan County Dramatic Workshop holds auditions on January 16 and 17 from 2 to 6 p.m. via Zoom for their production of Young Frankenstein, the musical. The first Music on the Delaware's Virtual Coffeehouse Concert of the Year takes place with Sarah Milanovic and Greg Anderson, Sunday, January 17, from 7 to 8 p.m., There's a self-guided winter tree walk at Liberty Walnut Mountain Park from dawn to dusk this weekend. Green ribbons mark the route and red ribbons indicate the trees you will meet. We're now at the height of eco-watching season and the Delaware Highlands Conservancy offers maps and videos on where to find the eagles and how to behave when watching. For more information on these and other community announcements, go to our website, wjffradio.org, and click the Community tab. Support comes from the Homestead School, Lens Bay, New York, Montessori education and life skills for preschool through eighth grade on an 85-acre campus with farm animals. Award-winning solar-powered alternative since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering. Now offering takeout. NeversinkGeneralStore.com. And from listeners like you. Over the months, we've heard songs about English towns and Irish towns on the Wackerload of Monkeys. Next time, it's Glasgow, Edinburgh, and songs about other Scottish towns. Join me, Graham Rice, on Sunday afternoon at 3, here on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233 